Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. I have had the pleasure of talking to some of the leading authors, artists, activists, and change makers of our time on this podcast. And I want to personally thank you for subscribing, listening, and sharing 100 plus episodes over 100,000 times. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy. And I look forward to more conversations with those important voices that will bring clarity to the situation we find ourselves in as we move toward November of 2024. If you appreciate these conversations and my cultural and political commentary, please subscribe to this podcast in conversation with Frank Schaefer on your favorite platform and to my substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. I'd really appreciate the help. Thank you. The narrative of history has been about fighting and wars and the assumption that resources are scarce. And so we have to fight over them to get our little piece of the pie. The truth is that our survival mechanism has been to collaborate and to understand that there isn't a finite pie. And in fact, if I help you and you help me, we both have more. Hi, this is Frank Schaefer, and you are watching and or listening to my podcast, in conversation with Frank Schaefer, seeing it on Facebook Live now, and then later on all those places, podcasts are placed on the interwebs and YouTube and all the rest of it. And today, um, I'm talking with Gloria Felt, who is the author of Intentioning. The subtitle is Sex Power, Pandemics, and How Women Will Take the Lead for Everyone's Good. And um, Gloria, first of all, let me just say, I am maybe not um, Terry Gross, but I am prepared. Here, here <laughs> oh my are God. the dog ears in oh. your book. Okay, <laughs> oh. so this is not skimmed. Okay, <laughs> this is red. There's the book, everybody. I'm going to be telling you all to buy it, but I've read it and marked it, and these are all marked pages, some of which we will get to, but I like to do that because the thing is, you know, you've probably been in an interview or two where you wonder, has this person even look to see what my name is 10 seconds ago. No, I got the book. Moreover, not a free copy from a publisher, purchased oh. and sent to me. Okay. So, I mean, does that hit all the boxes right there? I, I, you are my hero today. And I just Good. want to say in return that I don't have post-its in your book, but because I listened to all of it from beginning to end. Right. And I listened to the entire book and really enjoyed it really, really enjoyed it. you have a you have a beautiful reading voice too so that Thank was you. that was nice it was very pleasant well you know um in reading your book and then we'll get into this in a more orderly way but it was fun because one of the things that happened is I was wishing I had read it before I closed my book um out because there you know there were so many things I would have quoted in my book um which is fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, be happy. And it, it's come out. I forget the pub date of your book. When did your book come out? It came out uh, September 28th last year. Okay. Well, it was a little ahead of me and, and I hadn't run into it, which I regret because there were places where our two messages and points of view, and even in some weird ways, our lives and our interests converge. And I, and I would have made um, good use of that. Let me let me just kick off before we get into the book and talk about you a little bit, some of which I know because I've read the book and, and read other things about you, but let's talk about you. You know, I, in my writing, I'm very biographical at points because I had a very strange upbringing as a sidekick, nepotistic sidekick to an evangelical evangelist father. I left that background very intentionally, have done something different with my life, got Jeannie pregnant when we were 17 and 18, 52 years later, we're still together. I draw these things, including the childcare I do for my grandchildren into my work, rather than try to pretend that they are separate from it. And you do a bit of the same thing, but you come from a very different background. So let's roll back okay. and just talk about your parents for a minute. Who were they? What did they do? What were they like? Um, are you someone who left the way they did things and did something different? Have you tracked with them let's let's talk about that i did disappoint them terribly hmm. because i uh well so i will i will start back at the beginning which is i grew up in small texas towns 
And it was an era and a culture in which girls were not given ambitions or intentions for careers. If you went to college, they would say it was to get your MRS. And, um, you know, that was the that was the main reason you were to come home with a boy. Mm -hmm. And it was not unusual for the girls. In fact, it was it was almost um, a badge of honor for the girls in my high school, which was is the small town of Stamford, Texas, which I liken to the last picture show. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I always say I was Sybil Shepherd, but with dark hair. And it was, it was, you know, it was that kind of, uh, that kind of culture in which the boys were encouraged to have careers and the girls were encouraged to be the, the support system for everybody else. Now, mm. my parents, assumed I would go to college. My parents from the beginning told me, and my, my father in particular told me I could be anything or do anything. He used to say, you're anything, your pretty little head desires. It's a little tiny bit, you know, little mm -hmm. tiny bit sexist, but, but he, he was, he was way ahead of his time. And um, my mother was the archetype woman who never felt she had authority, who never, mm -hmm. she was probably smarter than all of us put together. Mm -hmm. She ran his business, basically. He was a brilliant entrepreneur who could lose money as fast as he made it, but she could keep the whole shebang running. And um, so I saw her do that. I had, we lived with my grandmother, who was also one of those women who we used to say, if it had been another era, she could have run General Motors. Right. And so I kind of had these mixed messages, but what I wanted more than anything else as a teenager was to be normal. And for me, normal in small town Texas meant you you get married early, you have a bunch of kids, you take care of everybody else, you don't have a career of your own. So I bought that Kool-Aid, I drank it like crazy, I got pregnant when I was 15, I married my high school sweetheart, and I'm going to say this was not any easier on him than it was on me, I think that sometimes that gets overlooked, he was four years older than me, so would he you had, would you have, you think you might have wound up married to him anyway, if you no. had not gotten pregnant? No, no, no. it was going to be because of that. Yes, yes, Okay, exactly. sorry, sorry to I interrupt mean, you, keep going. No. Right. L lovely, lovely man. And we are still friends, but we are so not compatible with each not other. Meant to so be, many right. reasons. Yeah. Right. I mean, I'm amazed at you and Jeannie. Well, hey, so, ours I was, kind of, you know, we can go into that, but I, yeah. I was, I, Hey, I never take credit for good luck. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, literally it was like being the sole survivor of a plane yeah. crash. Statistically I should be dead or everything should have blown up in my right. face. Yeah. It just happened that as we got older, I discovered that I had, I'd, totally chanced out gotten somebody pregnant irresponsibly and dumbly who you know 30 years later if I had met her in or 15 years later or 40 years later uh, I still would have fallen in love with her and That's she was great. the kind of person I wanted to be but I say again yeah luck of the draw it one is. in a million not recommended behavior I am not telling my grandchildren to get pregnant at 17 and take their chances okay just parenthetically so yeah, I'm exactly you. where you would have yeah. So, Where you were, I would have been there had not I been very yeah. lucky. So, so I uh, then I the next phase of my life after the last picture show was the Friday Night Lights stage of my life. So, I, just tell tell me about the child who was born at that time of your life, or not born, or whatever. Yes, what happened yes. with that pregnancy? She well, so I had all three of my children by the time I was just barely over twenty years old, and they are wonderful. You know, yeah. they've been the center of my life. I can't imagine not having them sort of mm -hmm. like you are with Jeannie. Yes. Um, but, but I also came to recognize how much better of a parent I would have been mm -hmm. if I had been 10 years older. There's just no question. Me too. And, and, and you know, as I, as I began to mature, yeah. once, when my third child was born, I, my son has heard me say this so often, he calls himself mom's light bulb. It mm -hmm. was like a light bulb went off and I'm like, oh, you know what? There may be more things in this world. <laughs> mm -hmm. I had learned to cook. I had learned so I had learned to play Susie Homemaker mm, wasn't so much fun as I thought it was going to yeah. be and I I started to college I started to community college in now were Odessa. you still living in Texas at this time yes we were in Odessa Texas in so the oil in field where my my ex-husband could get a job you know it was kind of like it is right now wild yeah. and woolly and jobs were plentiful mm -hmm. so he had gotten a job we moved to Odessa and it's, uh, it, it, I, I started to the community college because there was no senior level 
mm. college there at that time. And I was not of a mind that I would go off and leave my children to finish my education. So instead, once I had finished the first couple of years, I took, I started getting involved in community service work. And I got involved in the Great Society, the Civil Rights Movement. I learned a few things from that. That have and what sort of pulled? Just stop you there a minute. What first pulled you into that? So you're doing those other things, and now all of a sudden, you're, you know, you're t- talking about social yes. movements and political movements. And sort of what transitioned you from A to B as far as that little change goes? Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. If you appreciate my cultural and political commentary, please do me a favor and subscribe to my Substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. You can subscribe for free or you can kick in a couple of dollars a month and help me out and help me keep this going if you're able. Either way, I'm incredibly grateful for your support and most of all for your participation. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy as we move toward November of 2024. And every subscription helps create, build, sustain, and put voice to this movement for truth. Thank you so much. I wish I could tell you exactly, Hmm. but I think it was partly maturity. It was partly the fact that there was, it was a yeasty time in the culture, if you remember. I mean, it was just like, and I was in a town where there weren't many people who were willing to stand up. Do you want and to I, attach a year to that kind of? And that would have been in the early 60s, mid 60s, mid 60s. Yeah, yeah. mid 60s. And I started volunteering at Head Start, which was one of the great society programs. Sure. And uh, then I was offered a job teaching. You'd, it was brand new. You didn't have to have a degree. Mm. And that was my first, that was my first real job after I actually worked part-time at a friend's radio station for a while, but that's a whole other. Who were you teaching when you started? Uh, to Head Start. So that would have been kindergarten. Great. And from four, four, five, four and five-year-olds. And where were those kids coming from? Mostly underprivileged families or across the board or what? Or was everybody underprivileged in where you were? I mean, how did that work? <laughs> you could say that. You could say that. But basically, they were primarily, I mean, it was fairly racially mixed, mm. but it was, I would say, probably a third Black, a third Hispanic, and a third white, and mm. all in, in a low income, from a low income family. And at this point, and- you're still married? Yes. Okay. I was married for 18 years the first time. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. And yeah, I tried, we, we tried really hard. We really no, did. No, hey, yeah, listen, we tried really having hard. read your book, <laughs> no matter what anybody says about this book, Gloria felt intentioning. You will say, here's a person who tries really hard. Yes. yes I mean, you've true. tried hard to write a good book and you've succeeded, yeah. but your life shines through here. You right. are a try hard kind of person. You know, one woman army might be the way to describe yeah. it. Right. Well, the other thing, and this may be of particular interest to you because of your background, Frank, mm-hmm. is that I, I, so I, uh, my, my family was always one of few and sometimes the only Jewish families in these little towns. Yes. One of the reasons why I so wanted to be quote normal, because sure. no matter what I did, yeah, I was always identified as not being normal. Yeah, I totally, I totally get that because yeah. not only were we evangelicals living in Europe, we were Americans in a small village that was basically, you know, Katie bar the door, these are outsiders. Yeah. Then we would go on vacation to Italy. Other people are just digging into their antipasti at the little pensioni we stayed at because it was a cheap chain ride. It was like going from California to, to Mexico in the 60s. This is where you went if you didn't have money. Italy sounds uh-huh. fancy now, not then. Right. And everybody else is digging into their antipasti. My mother is bowing her head at the table and praying very loudly in a way to witness to unbelievers. <laughs> So I just want to tell you that, you know, when it comes to chagrin, try being 11 with a pretty little 11 year old girl sitting across who always comes on vacation, looking at you going like this, because she sees you looking at her while your mother prays and prays and prays. So parenthetically, just throw that in. Sorry, go on. Yes, no, I I totally, totally can see that. And, and I, I, I mean, my family was not particularly traditionally religious, although they, they embraced their identity, Yeah, but they did not particularly enforce it on me. 
No, and, but anyway, so, but just saying being Jewish in, a, in that atmosphere right. in Texas is like, you know, this is makes my Italian excursion look like nothing. I mean, well, you, it's, really, it's, you, yeah, you, were, you were the outsider. Yeah, you, you eventually gonna are gonna hear that you have horns and things did like that. Did anybody try, by the way, parenthetically, sorry, bringing my background again, did anybody try to witness to you and save you from burning in hell? Not all you the not time. accepted Jesus as your personal savior? Oh, like all the time, all That's the time, right? all the time. And I, I mean, I really became very interested in the hubris mm -hmm. of people who thought that they could just assume that they had the right sure. to try to, you know, to try. And, and so when my children came home from a neighbor's, mm. having been told that they had black hearts because they hadn't accepted Jesus, yeah. it was at that moment that I realized I had to, I had to study religions and I had to decide what I wanted my children to know and believe. Yeah. And so really a part of the story is that in so doing, I came to the conclusion that I actually actually liked the Jewish ethic. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, there, I'm not, it, it's not about the rituals or anything else. For me, it's about the ethic of responsibility, of personal responsibility. Yeah. And I really, and social justice. Well, and this so, arc of justice somehow going forward, and we're a little part of this, and we do our bit while we're here for our brief moment. I mean, that's the whole Jewish right. thing. Right. So, so I joined the little synagogue in West Texas, which was what kind of synagogue? Well, we called it conservative ortho reform. Okay. Because it had to appeal to everybody because there were yes. only 60 families in a hundred mile radius. <laughs> yeah. And some of them were getting old. So you and had some to of like them, that's right. Yes. Bring it all in. Yeah. Exactly. So I got involved. I, I learned, I studied, and I, I really, um, you know, I really applied, I think, a lot of the social justice imperatives. Can you give a year to this part? So that would be, that would have started around like in the late 60s. So like, basically you're on the cusp of the 72 war in Israel, which means at some point, either in your family or, the, or, or your community, mm -hmm. you know, you're becoming aware of the fact that there is this thing called Zionism, there's Israel, there's anti-Semitism in America, there's people who want to save you for Jesus. <laughs> In that whole mix, did you have, did you get involved with, because I have Jewish friends when I talk about my weirdness of my upbringing, they're saying, tell me about it. I had to stand on a street corner with a little red, white, and blue can raising money for the state of Israel when I was 10, wishing the sidewalk would swallow me. And I said, hey, we have both been witnessing for our version of Jesus, then I know where you're coming from. We, we, we do. There are so many similarities among the various different uh, belief yeah. systems. Well, but, seeing yourself as different is one of them. Right. Yeah. I mean, apart from the culture. So how did, how were you with your family and those, the, the Zionism, Israel, 72 war, blah, 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 48, all the rest of it. Where, where did you all, or wasn't that on your radar screen in your home? It was, I was interested in that part of it, but I was really more interested in the social justice movements in the United States. Yeah. And by, by getting involved in the civil rights movement, I learned that people who work together, even if they have no formal power, can change anything. Yes. And I will say that that was a lesson that stood me in good stead, hmm. literally, until this very day. Yeah, There's and, and it's very much the bedrock of intentioning, which is yes. the book we're going to get to in a minute here by yeah. Gloria Felt. And by the way, I might as well just do a little program note here. This is In Conversation with Frank Schaefer. I am talking with Gloria Felt today, who is also, besides being an author, co-founder, president of Take the Lead, an organization whose mission is to prepare, develop, inspire, propel women to take their fair and equal share of leadership positions across all sectors. Um, by, I guess you got a date on there, 2025, uh, which may be a little optimistic. Where did that pop up from? I'm just reading what my producer Ernie gave me here, and that's in 2025. It's suddenly like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, I know, I know. It was, it was bold when we started Take the Lead, which is now eight years ago. Yeah. It's even bolder now because the pandemic has set women back. It has. And by 2025, we may be a year into the second term of the Trump presidency unless no, the Democrats no, get we, their we, act we can't together. Do that. We, I'm sorry. I'm trying not to be too political, but no, we can't do that. No, um, I, mean, I agree sorry. we can't, but I'm just saying. <laughs> you have to be prepared for anything. Yeah. So, so let me get back to let me get back to the family and and um, the issue I was talking about, sort of the self-awareness of being Jewish. Mm -hmm. In this community, 
How did that then translate into Gloria Felt, who writes intentioning, knowing that you come from this tradition of um, trying to forward the advance of this arc of justice. And now this is your bailiwick, this is your thing here, but you've done other stuff in terms of racial justice and these other issues, taught kids, uh, raised a family. All right, so when you, when you transition from where you were then to say where you are now, where were you on the kind of feminist path at that point? Because you're starting out, you know, pregnant little kids, you want to be, you know, fit in. Well, obviously, at some point, you didn't fit in in a lot of ways. And one of them is, you know, your very well thought out, uh, well reasoned feminist position on so many things. And I use that term fondly and in the best possible sense of the word. So where, where did that translate? Did you read somebody's book? Were you exposed to some ideas? How did that all come about? It actually also related to my work in the civil rights movement. Mm. And one of the things I noticed, because that was the first time I had been involved in like organizational things. Yes. I noticed that the women were doing all the frontline work and the men were in all the leadership positions and getting all the credit. Yeah. And this was both and, black and white men and yes, women or yes, black yes, men yes, and yes, black yes. women. or yes, yes, exactly. And I noticed that and the women were serving the men. And the, I mean, it was sort of like, I'm like, wait a minute, if there are civil rights, yes, I think women must have them too. Yeah. And that was what made me, I'm not sure that there was a moment where, where I decided that I was going to spend the rest of my life working for women's equality, but yeah. somewhere in there, that's what happened. And then serendipitously, um, I was offered a position as the executive director of the small, fairly new Planned Parenthood affiliate in West Texas at a time when I had no experience. I knew I had, I didn't know, know a thing. But I, what I found out later was that every year, this organization, which had been around for three years when they found me, mm. every year they would get a, they would do a national search and they would hire some really great person who would come to Odessa, Texas and leave after a year. Yeah, take so, one look around and say, hey, I want to <laughs> yeah, go like, I'm, I'm out of here. find a restaurant. I, however, was part of the community. And so they yeah. knew that I knew, I understood, I had a network. And so it, it was, it was little did I know that it was, I would have, I had intended, speaking of intentioning, I had always intended to be a, a secondary school social studies teacher. Hmm. That was my life path that I had determined I was going to have. And I had gone back to school when the University of Texas opened a branch in Odessa. When so your that kids I could, are what age at that point? My kids are nearing, pre they're preteen now. Okay. They're getting preteen. And I, so I, I go back to school. I finished the last two years in one year. I'm like determined I'm going to get this done. Hmm. And I was really planning to do my student teaching in the fall after that year. Yes. My last class was ecology. Hmm. And I ended up doing a paper on this little new Planned Parenthood affiliate, which I had learned about from one of my co-teachers at Head Start, who was one of the leading laypersons in the Catholic church on the south side of Odessa and her priest who both were on the Planned Parenthood board. And what year would have that been? That would have been 1970. They got me to do some little, little committee work, maybe in 73. So we're just on the cusp, we're either on the cusp of or just beyond Roe, the Roe decision. Yeah. So yeah. you're, you're, and of course that's a Texas case. You know, um, it would have been before Roe. So it would have been before Roe. Before Roe, yeah. Because so did you, just to interrupt you there a little bit, since my family had so much to do with the beginnings of the unfortunate, <laughs> sad, shameful beginnings of the anti-abortion movement that was just thinly veiled misogyny, as I talk about in my book, as you mm -hmm. know, because you listened to it, um, some of the harm of which I've been trying to undo for the last 40 years, but that's, that's a different story. Um, in your experience of being at that clinic for three years, how much of the beginnings of kind of protests and harassment did you experience or was that so early in the process that nobody really realized who you were or what you were doing there? It was very early in the process. And while there were some rumblings hmm. there really, it was, a, it was a heady time. It was, you know, when I started my role at, at, at Planned Parenthood, it was after Roe, I started working at there in 1974. 
Yes. Was after Roe, there was Roe, there was Griswold, which gave the right to birth control. There was federal funding was flowing like yes. water. Um, you know, like George H.W. Bush was so in favor of family planning that they called him rubbers. Yes. And we don't see too many people like that anymore. On that well, that sort, of, that sort of carried forward into yeah. him in, into him with his activism on, on AIDS research and helping AIDS patients yes. across Africa. I mean, right. there was an altruistic side to the Bush family that we forget used to be part of the Republican Party. That's true. That is very true. Yes. So that, uh, that, that put me in, interestingly enough, into a position that actually turned out to be exactly right for me. I found out I have a CEO brain. I found out that I will, I love to, I love to grow things. I love to have a vision and be able to make it come to fruition. Mm -hmm. So while I do love teaching and I am still doing a lot of teaching, it turned out it's totally serendipitously that it was the right thing for me. So fast forward 30 years later, I retire as the national president, which I would have never I would have never done. Now I want to no, no, repeat because people are watching. I just want them to track mm -hmm. national president of what? I get it. But... Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Yeah, because see, we're starting out with you in a tiny little branch <laughs> for three years, <laughs> and we're going national president. Um, there is a journey there. There's a journey. <laughs> so yeah. they put you in charge of more than just this <laughs> outfit, and I want people to understand that that my guest Gloria, who is the author of Intentioning right here is just and, told you in a very casual way she happened to be president of Planned Parenthood Federation of America yeah. for, for a long time so um, that's a big deal let's just think about that again so how how thumbnail how do you go from you're three years in you're a teacher you're doing this and then somebody suddenly discovers oh we've, we've just found the head of our organization let's put her in charge of everything and let her ride ride the storm. Right. Well, I want I want to go back to one of the previous questions that you asked because I, I there's an additional additional bit of answer that I want to give you about yeah. the the transition of my life, which is I came to understand how fortunate I was to have had the experience of being seen as the other. Mm, came mm. to understand how valuable that experience was. And can I just interject and say, mm -hmm. when you say other, from the way I'm reading it from your book and knowing a little about you, we're talking growing up Jewish in a small Texas town, mm -hmm. getting pregnant at 15 and mm -hmm. knowing what that's like. You and me understand each other there very, very well. Right. Being someone who gets married young and has to work all that out, but doesn't quite fit in with the community, right? wants to be very normal and sort of then finds you really are not an outsider, but you have other intentions. There are a lot of, there are a lot of threads here to you discovering that you are the quote other in a lot of people's books. Mm -hmm. And then you become a civil rights activist and find out that civil rights stops at the gender door. Mm -hmm. For all the fine talk about racial civil rights, mm -hmm. because both black and white male leaders are basically doing what the rock stars at the same period did, which right. was, you know, there's us and it's a male thing and you can be a groupie if you want to and or make coffee. Right. Well, and, and the thing is that what you eventually might learn in the course of your life, which I did, was that ultimately what sets you apart is the very thing that makes you you. And it's, mm. what, it's what actually helps you get ahead. And that's why... Yes. In, in intentioning, in my book, Intentioning, the first of the leadership tools in it is uncover yourself. Mm. Because I had to uncover in myself and come to terms with, yes, you are different from the other kids in your school. You are different from your neighbors in Odessa, Texas. And you know what? That has taught you things that are very valuable yes. as you move into leadership. Yeah. Yeah, so, and I think, yeah. again, that's such a parallel with some of my experiences that rings so true. So let me get back to the little question I had. Just give me a tiny bridge. I don't want to take too long on this, but give me a bridge between three years into this tiny little unheard of center in the middle of nowhere to becoming the national leader of a huge organization that must have put you in the media every 10 seconds, doing interviews, defending yourself, being attacked, being lauded. <laughs> Uh, meeting with people who loved what you were doing, getting responses from a lot of people who hated what you were doing. This is really, if if you were going to pick 
two or three things. I mean, the head of the Democratic Party or Republican Party, or maybe one or two other things, but I can't think of a, a role that puts you more in the crosshairs of your moment of history than the one you did running Planned Parenthood. So very, very true, very talk true. Talk about the transition from yeah. small town to the biggest time, big time you can imagine without being the publisher of the New York Times. I mean, what, <laughs> what, where, how did you, how did that happen? Yeah, well, I worked my ass off. How about that? That was- Yeah, but I mean, you, did, you didn't I mean, sit you down know, and say, I, now, I mean, hey, honestly, damn it, honestly. I want to run this organization. I mean, it didn't happen. No, I, I never, it wasn't, it was not in my dream, I will tell you. I so after four years uh, in in West Texas, leading yeah. Planned Parenthood affiliate there, I was divorced. I was ready to leave West mm -hmm. Texas. I was recruited to for the San Antonio affiliate. Never mm -hmm. wanted to leave Texas. I mean, I'm still kind of like identify as a Texan for sure. good or for ill. And I uh, you and, and Ann Richardson. Yeah, and and I was simultaneously recruited for the Arizona affiliate. Yeah. And what I quickly realized was that because I had learned that what I liked to do best and did it the best was to grow an organization mm -hmm. and the Arizona affiliate had no money, but they had big dreams about, you know, about serving more people and opening more clinics. And uh, I, you know, that it was just the right fit for me. And I was fortunate enough to be hired for that job, which I did for 18 years. Mm. Now, I was recruited to the, they, you know, the headhunters came to me when I guess in, I don't know, 1994, when they were looking for a new CEO for the national organization. And I was unwilling to move to New York. That was like, I could not even imagine yeah. living in New York. And a couple of years later, it was the same story. But at that point, I actually knew in my heart and soul, and my husband was the one who finally made me acknowledge this. I, by the way, I found my husband, my, 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 my current husband, I call him. Yeah. Uh, that, sounds, in, that sounds too Johnny Carson-esque, my current yeah, husband. We just, Come on, you're more serious just, than that. We just celebrated our 41st. And just tell him, now we, poor guy's been referred to as my current husband. Just take 10, 30 seconds. Tell me his name and when you met, how you met your current well, his husband. Name, his name is Alex Barbanel. And when I walked in to interview with the search committee in mm -hmm. Phoenix, Arizona, this has been validated. I didn't make this up. He claims he got vibes from my resume. And remember, this is the pre-Google days. Yeah. They couldn't look me up. But he told one of the other board members, Gary, I've just met my last wife. That's great. And he didn't take no for an answer until that was actually true. Well, see, and I like his way of putting it better than yours. My current <laughs> husband, I, I prefer I met my last wife. Yes. Obviously, he's a romantic. Yes, yes. So I like him. Yes, he is. He is wonderful. And I like him. I he, like him. He had um, he had an insurance brokerage business here in Phoenix that he had built himself. And he could have probably still been working in it all these years later because that's one of those professions that you never have to retire from if it's your business. But yeah. he looked at the situation and he knew. So first of all, it had to be somebody who could cope with at that time, that was the height of the violence. Hmm. And that was a that was the height of the murders, the firebombs, the harassment. Yeah, it, Operation Rescue, the whole bet. All of it. All of Sadly, it. Sadly, as you know, I had too much to do with all of that. And yes. um, again, that's not the subject of this interview, but as someone who was on the other side in the beginning stages of that, and I'm not being maudlin or stupid or cheap here, but seriously, you know, can I take a second here to offer you, you my sincerest apology for my stupidity, for my part in a totally negative anti-woman movement. Um, I've talked about apologizing before, but here I'm able to look you in the eye and just say, listen, I am really sorry for the crap that I contributed to putting you through personally, the danger I put you in, the threats you faced, um, I know who our people were, and I would not ever do that to my worst enemy. I am so sorry, Gloria. I am so sorry. Well, I, you, you don't even need to say it because you have more than atoned. Uh, it, it, your book is so full of, of atoning and, and actually, more importantly, taking a different path. Yeah, and exactly. And, and, yeah, and, right. and, and admiring so much the path 
you're on, but you know, I don't want to blow by it because we do have to take responsibility for what we do, even when we're yeah. young and dumb right. and indoctrinated. Right. It's still no excuse. So anyway, that said, let's oh, get back to your no, story. It was, it was clear that, so first of all, I had the trust of affiliates. The organization had been through something like four or five leadership changes in the same number of years. And, and hands-on experience at that point. Yes. Building yes. up. Yes. And so it was, as my husband said, the right thing at the right time. And I honestly deluded myself into thinking that, okay, I'm going to go fix everything and I'm going to be back in Arizona in three years. Well, sure. I'm still in New York and I love it, but, but I, and I was the national president for nine years, but, and, and there are a few, still a few things that need to get fixed, but that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. You wouldn't, one of the things you learned. So just give me the dates again of the national presidency of Planned Parenthood, which was you, when did you start? When did that end? 1996 till 2005. Okay, sure. Right. At that point, I, well, I, one of the things I didn't say about my younger years is that I had always wanted to be a writer. Mm. And if I had at age five said what I was going to be with my life, I would have said, I will be a writer. I carried a little notebook like this around with me everywhere. I had a teacher who, who literally taught the other children in a class, a poem that I wrote, which gave me validation that, oh, I can be a writer. And I, I, but life intervened as it does sometimes. And so I knew that if I was ever going to fulfill that part of my dream that I needed to, I needed to have the time and the space to do that. Mm. So I, I, I left with the intention of writing books and I wrote some books and yes. then I wrote a book that led me into starting Take the Lead because I, I, the book that I wrote just before Intentioning is called No Excuses, Nine Ways Women Can Change How We Think About Power. And, and just, it, just talk about that transition from that to Take the Lead and take just a minute here to tell us what Take the Lead is about. And let me just quickly add that anybody watching this, this is In Conversation with Frank Schaefer, a podcast who wants to get in touch with Gloria, buy her book, find out more. We're not going to list all sorts of things here because anywhere this is posted, all those links will be available. Excellent. And we Excellent. want you, we want you to buy this book. We're going to make it as easy as possible. There will be a click, a button. You will <laughs> be able to buy the book. So you'll have no excuse for not buying intentioning. And yeah. anybody who wants to get in touch with you or take the lead, that's a commercial break over. Tell Very us about good. take the lead and how what you were doing okay. transitioned into that. Okay. So I, I, I was asked by Elle Magazine to write an article about women running for office in 2008 when it seemed like we were going to have our first woman president the first time. And I quickly found out the story was women weren't running. Mm. And that's why there was so much disparity. And then I, as I studied it, I realized the data was exactly the same. The numbers were the same in business, in entrepreneurship. It didn't matter what yes. sector it was. Professions, women were under 20% of the top leadership positions across the board. Yes. So I was shocked. It never occurred to me that you could open doors and change laws and people wouldn't mm. walk through them. Mm. And the book, No Excuses, is a study of what are the issues in our own heads as yes. women that yes. actually, you know, we, everything is culturally learned. There's no, nothing's hardwired, yes. but there are culturally learned ambivalences about power for good reason. Mm. We have borne the brunt of some really bad aspects of it. Yes. And women would say to me, oh, power is a bad word. I don't want power. I yeah. don't have power. I may well, have. They, they watched how it was exercised over them by their male cohort. There you go. Yeah. Not a good beginning. So, but, but I realized that on the other hand, if you're unwilling to embrace your power and know what your value is that you bring, you can't get anything done. And yes. that's why first you have to see yourself as wanting to take those positions. And mm -hmm. then you have to have the tools and the skills and the plan to get there. Yeah. So in No Excuses, I provided those things. People started asking me, to, I thought it was a social commentary book. People started asking me to teach leadership workshops from it. Yes. And it was fun. And I saw women have amazing breakthroughs. And so pretty soon I was, you know, back into my movement building mode and was persuaded by a colleague that we needed to have an organization. And that's organization is take the lead in our mission to prepare, develop, inspire, and propel women to take all women of all diversities and intersectionalities to take their fair and equal share of leadership positions by 2025. Now, why 2025? Yeah, I was going to ask that. Because you know how old I am, Frank. 
And no, I, I don't because, I, and we're not going to ask, but I just want to tell you. Do the that math, you, do the math, my friend. No, I, I have to. <laughs> or I Google, the math. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> and, you, you know, I want to be alive to see it. And that's yes. it. I have to be alive to see this. And I feel we are on the cusp of it. I really feel that. Yeah. I know people say that women have been set back by the pandemic, but the other thing that's happened by the as a result of the pandemic is that organizations are having to change. Well, and, not only that, the pandemic was a wonderful global uh, example of the fact that women's leadership actually reacted better to this crisis than right. any male leadership. So you had these people like Bolsonaro and uh, Trump here and other folks, Boris Johnson more recently in the UK, you know, they really, they really uh, screwed it up because of the sort of male toxicity of what I call you know, the old British word bumptiousness, you know, you're all this sort of hubris and nonsense. The women just got on with it and led their countries very well. You know, um, I have a chapter in my book about why, from my point of view, feminism is more of a gift to men than it is to women. And I'm not being smartass about that, mm -hmm. because when you look at the actuarial tables, men who live in countries where there's more gender equality actually live almost as long as women do, right. which is kind of nice. Yeah. And um, there's a lot less suicide and there are a lot less, there's a lot less mental disorders. This is only because, you know, as someone who's been on both sides of the issue, having been that bumptious male raised to believe God had put men in charge, having transitioned to that where my wife is my best friend and we're real partners, mm -hmm. the relief to not have to be an asshole all the time, to not be in charge all the time, it takes away a huge psychological burden. I don't think most women perhaps understand the short end of the stick that men get, assuming a role that is counter evolutionary, because we all evolved as caregivers. Mm -hmm. And so women are better leaders. They're not equal to men. I think they are better leaders across the board in an evolutionary sense that our survival depends on what women do best, which is cooperation of the survival of the friendliest right. rather than this stupid idea of the survival of the fittest. Yeah. So I'm sorry to preach the little sermon there, but well, that, well, I that think it's, it's, my views. you're right, because essentially both men and women are socialized to be in little boxes that tell yes. you who you should be, how you should be. And it's very liberating to get out of those boxes. It's very yeah. liberating to realize that, uh, you know, the, the ideal is that everyone should be able to, to basically give their best gifts to the, to the betterment of humanity. If we yes. can have that kind of mentality, that's great. And that's why I say, you know, that's why the subtitle of the, my book is, for everyone's good that, yeah, that, that exactly. women, how women will take the lead for everyone's good speaking I of which i am going to jump in here because we've done a lot of good talking about a lot of stuff but let's now talk about intentioning sex okay. power pandemics and how women will take the lead for everyone's good by gloria felt former what was the title of ceo what did they call you president of the president uh, ceo yeah president ceo of planned parenthood for many years and a, a remarkable person who's written other books all of which we will list. But let me just go to some things here. Um, let me take one that jumps right out of just sort of in the first third of the book, maximize family leave for caregiving equally for men and women. I had Representative Ted Lieu on here last week that I interviewed and I spent a lot of time really asking him, what are the chances of getting some decent family leave? And I'm talking about paid family leave for men, for women, thinking mm -hmm. of uh, you know, men who don't take it when they do have it because they think it'll hurt their jobs, perhaps even more so for women, these ridiculous numbers like two weeks or four weeks when it should be months. So from your perspective of being as clued as you are, A, how can we make more of this issue until it actually happens and on a scale that actually makes sense for people's lives, which is more than just a couple of weeks, paid family leave backed up by the federal government. Right. Uh, who We are talking about it now, and that is a big step forward because it yeah. has been a backwater, back channel. It, nobody even ever thought it would become a, a matter of, of possibility. Well, and opposed by the pro-family hypocrites. Yes. Right. Who, for instance, on Fox News were mocking Pete mm -hmm. Buttigieg for wanting some time with his children. Right. I mean, just <laughs> I rest my case. That's right. Exactly. Well, you know, and nobody ever said you had to be consistent, right? Yeah, was, uh, yeah I think that's uh, for, we could we could we could definitely talk. I just about talk. That. So you think it's yeah. in it? You think we're stepping forward because we're talking about it? I'm I'm thinking about your 2025 date, and I think for my you know there's all sorts of things we can talk about, and they're all in your book. But let's just start with this 
mm-hmm. business of paid family leave. So I mean, if I we're going to get if we're going to get there by 2025, we need yeah. to have something on the books about paid family leave. Well, the good thing about massive disruptions like pandemics mm-hmm. is that both individuals and organizations have to think differently. If they're yes. going to survive, they have to be open to new ideas that they have not they have not tolerated before. Including if, corporate America that's losing employees who want to stay home and find a better balance between family life and what corporations demand. Exactly. And if, you know, they're all crying that they need to bring the women back to work, right? Yes. Well, here's how to bring the women back to work. Do what women have been saying all along mm. that companies should be doing. Because, yes. you know, it's not like having babies is anything new in this world. How would, I always ask when I'm teaching my, my courses, I always say, if women had designed the structures of work, what would they look like? Mm. You know, because this, the structures that we currently work in were designed by men, white men, yes. who had women and people of color at home taking care of the house and the and the kids and the animals and whatever else. Well, nobody lives that way anymore. But our institutions have not kept pace. Yes. And so the institutions that are going to be most successful are going to be those that are most open to allowing for the real human issues that every single human being faces. Now, you know, I'm at a stage of life where I don't need child care giving uh, time off anymore, but, you know, I might need caregiving for an elderly relative or, or something like that. These are just part of human life. And that is, I think that's the biggest breakthrough. Is yeah, I agree. Now, let me, let me, let me go. I want to look at some more specifics here because okay. I've got a lot in here and I want to talk about. Um, I'm often asked, what about the men? This is toward the end of your book, page 177. What about the men? Aren't you leaving them out of the picture? Or I'll hear, I know lots of men who are very pro-woman. Um, alternate versions include, I hired my first woman VP or I have two daughters and so forth. You are the gender versions of some of my best friends are, fill in the blank. <laughs> I totally love that. But I just wanted to then go to the positive side and ask you a question, because if anybody knows an answer to this, it's Gloria Felt. Are there more men around now who get it than there were? Or are you still, you know, totally in an uphill battle where the women are friendly to this and really understand the gender equity issues and that there are not very men, many men who get it? Or if they do get it, it's just because they have to for their business. Their heart is not in it. What's the state of the union when it comes to male attitudes towards women and gender equity, especially in the workplace. Every time I think we are on the last gasp of the patriarchy, hmm. it comes back in some way or another. You may have noticed that one of the legislative, one of the members of Congress recently referred to women as vessels and yes. why they should, you know, they should be pleased to be the vessels and, and, and mere vessels. Okay, so there's well, that. And, there's that. Uh, and I may say, sadly, a woman on the Supreme Court yes. Yes. says, hey, just leave your baby at a firehouse. What's your problem with having a child? Right. So, so she, she had the whole vessel thing down too. So it's not just gender, it's the politics of the gender. It, it, it is, and it's the cultural ethos of, of the individual. Yeah. But that having been said, there are all around us men, and I shout out quite a few of them in the book, because there are men who are creating change every day in, yes. the, in the world of organizations. I, I mean, David Smith and Brad Johnson, who are sociologists who have done major studies and who have, they have written books about the importance of men mentoring women mm-hmm. if we want more women to move into leadership about why uh, why men being ally? I actually prefer partners to allies, but they use the yes. term ally. Uh, why that's important? Uh, there are men like Josh Lebs who sued CNN because his wife was ill when she had her third child. The child mm-hmm. was ill. He needed to be able to take time off to take care of them, and CNN was refusing that. Yeah. So he he sued them and he won. And of course he lost his job in the process, but you know, that's sometimes what happens. But won, right. but so there are men who are definitely breaking the pattern, showing the way. And I think we need to, we need to highlight them. Well, and you talked earlier about not wasting a crisis as it were, and that mm-hmm. COVID at the very least has given us a kind of a timeout. Mm-hmm. To think about things. Well, one of them is that you have young males for instance, that my daughter knows because she works with them in New York City. She's the CEO of, a, of an investment company down there um, who now are saying, 
I got used to being home more and helping my wife more and spelling her so she could do more. I'm not going back to the old way. I want to be in my house three or four days a week. And if you don't like this, I'll find another job. And part of that is that they fell in love with their families and children in a new way. But another thing is that, you know, they, they finally got to understand what their partner, their spouse, their wife uh, was doing. And that there's a generation coming that I think, in my humble opinion, is slightly more open from the male perspective to having a fuller life when it comes to the family. And they don't see this as much as a burden. Oh, well, I'll do this so that my wife's happy, but far more joyfully than that. Am I wrong in that? Or are you seeing some of that too? No, I, I think you're right. And I'll, I'll be personal about it. First of all, there's a generation of men who were raised by women like me. Yes. And they have seen women play many different roles and yes. it all works out fine. And then also the, that generation, that, that generation of men, I think partly because people are having children when they're a little older, I think that really is a big help yes. and they're a little more mature. And I know and my own son, I, I know that he actually, he actually did not go for certain uh, and new jobs mm. because he, that would have required him to move the family or would have required him to go to, you know, some other country. Yeah. And he wanted to be there for his children. Mm. And I tell you, I've, if there's anything I've done in my life that I'm proud of mm. is that my children have been much better parents than I was because yeah. precisely because they were much more mature when they Speaking had of which, where are and how many grandchildren do you have? <laughs> um, between the two of us, um, Alex and I have a blended family of six children mm. and 15 grandchildren. Age ranges? Age of ranges. The of the grandchildren? Six to 30 something. That's great. Yeah. That's, that's very close to um, Jeannie and me. Uh, the youngest now is seven and a half. That's Nora and her sister, Lucy, who's 13 and Jack who's 11 live across the street. And then there are my, the two kids that my daughter had, who comes from the pregnancy that Jeannie had when we were 17 and 18, do the math. And I, I know it sounds crazy, but um, one of them's almost 30 and the other's in his late twenties. So kind of a similar, similar yes. path. Yes, yes, yes. Well, it's, it's, but you know, it's, it's all good because it's all what it is and and if you yeah, can exactly. appreciate all of it and i so i i feel like i need to call you ba because that is yes. so cute and how you how your grandchildren refer to you as ba it's so adorable yeah. and I, I i i personally as somebody whose grandmother was the most the most uh, impactful person in my life hmm. i just want to say i mean i think grandparents can be so important to children yes and uh, so i really love what you say and what you what you do about being part of your grandchildren's lives. Thank you. And the other thing is to practically speaking, and I'm not patting myself on the back, I'm just saying this, you know, if you believe in gender equity and you have a daughter-in-law who wants to have a career and you love your grandchildren, you can really do a lot of things at the same time by doing the school pickup, by fixing the snack, because she knows her child's getting the most loving care that they could find on this planet. Mm -hmm. um, Nothing is totally safe in this life, but that's as good a position to be in with a grandparent and you can do something about it. So, you know, as I push into my seventies um, and we talk about all this stuff, theoretically, uh, you know, my daughter has a career and my daughter-in-law has a career and, and both with my support, but in the case of these three youngest grandchildren with 13 years of hands-on childcare, mm -hmm. my son and daughter-in-law don't have to think about this stuff. And man, it has not been a sacrifice. Tiring as hell, yes, but not a sacrifice. It's been completely good. So a little time out for that. Uh, but continuing now with, with the book, I really do want to dive into a couple other quotes here that I found just so wonderful. Um, but fairness alone rarely wins the day. We have reached a strategic inflection point where the business case and the fairness case have merged. And there are increasing pressures on leadership to take action on their delivery and inclusion goals, including gender parity. It's a moment any start smart business should want to make the best of. So why are women still so far from parity? Kind of a question in the summing up part of the book. And so I'm gonna ask you, why are women still 
still so far from parity, other than just a blanket explanation about the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. What's the mechanics of this in both women's thinking and men's thinking and the culture and the politics? Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good question to delve into before we wrap this up. What is the problem here? Yeah, it, it is indeed, and it is it is why I focus so much on on the power paradigm mm. uh, in in and in teaching women how to embrace power in a new way, and how much better the world will be when we think of power as being the power to. Which mm. so just stop on the power to, and when you say a new way, tell us what what is new about it. The the narrative of history has been about fighting and wars, and the assumption that resources are scarce. And so we have to fight over them to get our little piece of the pie. The truth is, and I think women are more inclined to have this concept. I mean, you mentioned the collaboration and- and um, Survival and of the friendliest. Kind of yeah, right. Is that our survival mechanism has been to collaborate and to understand that there isn't a finite pie. And in fact, if I help you and you help me, we both have more. And yeah. if, if we instill that as an ethic, so when I talk about shifting the power paradigm, it is from that old oppressive idea of power being the power over you, mm. and that I have to fight you for my piece of the pie. Well, we can make more pies in an economy that is based on brains, not brawn. It is, you know, women are earning almost two thirds of the college degrees, for goodness sakes, you know, we're the yes. prepared workforce in this economy. Yeah. It's about there's no limit to creativity, there's no limit to innovation, there's no limit to human love and capacity to expand our minds and be intelligent. So, but that's not how the world has been for us. And so it takes an intentional shift in in that and one of my worst fears mm. is that as more women do assume powerful positions they'll forget that mm. because I, I and that's like i am I, I i mean this is a whole subject for another conversation but i really want to make sure that the change that women can bring becomes a real change rather so when than, you say forget that just repeat what that is that is a shift in the power of, and how we think about power a shift in the yeah. power and that and then again the shift in the thinking is from power over, over to power to to like yeah. power is really it is amorphous it is like a hammer you can build something with it or you can break something apart it's mm. pure energy it's what we do with it but you know it's been defined in a very oppressive way yes through history and i think you know i think about it when i think about your you know what you say about the the culture that you came from it's yes. a very power over kind of a culture. Yes. And, uh, and once you can. With rules from God to back it up. Oh, yes. There's that. Yes. <laughs> In case you want to argue with me. <laughs> no, that's no, thank you. No, there, thank that's you. where it all is. <laughs> so, so what I've seen is that once women make that shift, mm. it is as though masks fall off of their faces. Yeah because they've been trying to live yeah. in a world they didn't create, yeah. in a culture they didn't create. And once they realize they can make that shift, mm. it's like, oh yeah, well, I want that. You know, I want that kind of power. I yeah. want to make yeah. life better for my family, my, 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 my community, myself, the world. And it literally, it sounds so simple, mm. but it is very profound. And if we can make that shift, if we can help even you know, a, a critical mass of people make that shift. I think we will have that kind of culture that yeah. you talk about in your book. Yeah, absolutely. Now, let me just dive back in here because like I said, but fairness alone rarely wins the day. <laughs> this sort of answers you what you were yeah. just saying. Right. We have reached a strategic inflection point. Okay, that's what you were talking about. So mm -hmm. are you optimistic? Because in a way, if fairness doesn't win the day, then what does win the day? when the kind of power you're talking about is not power over, um, how, how, how do you then gain the leverage mm -hmm. to bring the change? I mean, what do you think? Mm -hmm. Well, what, what I say is that, that, um, that alone, it won't, you know, right. the, the, the righteousness alone is not going to save the day. Justice right. alone is not going to save the day. However, people, especially leaders, like to feel that they are 
righteous. They like to feel that they are saving the day. And so once you can show, as we do, that companies with more women in their leadership actually are more profitable, then it becomes a slam dunk to, to make some changes. I mean, as you mentioned, countries led by women, we know, had done much better in the pandemic, but not just that those countries with more women in their parliaments actually have better decision-making processes according to the world bank and 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 make and actually they're not surprisingly a little more peaceful so yeah and and you find that there are women around who are helping us track that like my friend Jose Zilstra with her nonprofit mm-hmm. gender fair where you can download their app and track companies that treat women better right. and have more gender parity or right. Edie, Fra- Edie Frazier who started this group called WBC women uh, business collaborative where they have sister companies of, with I think 600 organizations or 60 or something I get mixed up on numbers but anyway represent a lot of women around the world you know that consciousness is being raised so that you know your message should be um, received well you know across the board one, one thing um, that you talk about here is make it attractive or mandatory that men take parental leave equal to women to go back to what I was talking about. Why, why is it that my daughter, who's a CEO of a company in New York was saying up until the pandemic, both men and women were hiding their families. As in, if I talk about my kids, if I say I'm doing a school pickup or if I take the parental leave that is offered, I will not be taken as seriously as business. So my last question to you that mm-hmm. kind of ties in with my book, but is very much your book too, it's how do we get past this idea that there are two spheres to life and one is the sort of serious business sphere and the other is, oh, well, it's just your family, it's personal. When can we shift that and make it all one thing of equal importance so that a woman's parenthood and motherhood, a woman's business leadership, her partner's capabilities all become one thing in service, not just of a job, but of a life worth living Mm-hmm. And so the corporations come to realize, hey, we have happier, more complete employees. This is actually good for our business. Ever since we started this childcare center on the factory floor, run by Montessori, so it would be good for the kids. All our employees are happier. When does the penny drop mm-hmm. that if we would reach out on the basis of we are all caregivers of each other and let's run it that way from here on out, um, everything changes for the better. And that's really the key, I think, to this, this idea of yours of shifting the way we see power. It is the power to be whole people, I hope. I hope so too. I think the ways we do it are, to, first of all, to understand that social change does not come in a straight line. Mm. There's always uh, fits and starts and setbacks, and uh, but that if you have your eyes on the prize, as, as Dr. Martin Luther King said, you, no. you will eventually get there. The uh, Another aspect of it is that we have to use the power of our voices and our experiences, as you have, as, as I am doing, as I encourage women who go through our courses at Take the Lead, I encourage them to use the power of their voices, because mm-hmm. if they don't, who's going to know? Yeah, if you, you know, you, you, if you do not, if you're not willing to use the power of your voice, how is the world going to know? Yes, you can you can make a difference. And how will you make a difference? So I think it's you know, there's the individual piece of it. There's the social sociological piece of it. There's the willingness to take the opportunity of these massive disruptions like we have Mm. uh, in the pandemic right now. And the smartest companies are going to make those changes and they're going to be the ones that are more profitable and ultimately then, um, you know, that the the, the law of. uh, The law of the jungle, I think, will will help to to change some of it. Yeah, the survival of the friendliest actually pays off. Yes, indeed, indeed. And these other other dinosaurs can just drop by the wayside (laughs) and good riddance, have fun storming the castle, but party over. Right. (laughs) Anyway, Gloria, listen, I'm going to wrap this up now, but let me just one more say, one more time, that uh, Gloria's book, uh, once again, Intentioning Sex, Power, Pandemics, and How Women Will Take the Lead for Everyone's Good, uh, Gloria Felt, um, this has been a real pleasure. I hope people click on all our links to your book and buy it, uh, read it, learn from it. I hope that folks come to you um, through the links and go 
and be part of your outreach um, on all fronts in terms of take the lead and get involved any way they can. So please do that. And let me just say, this has been a lovely conversation. I think you're a wonderful person. I just so enjoyed talking to you. Um, I actually lost track of it at some points and thought that we were just back in the old days when you sit next to someone on an airplane and first you don't want to talk to them and you talk a little and you think, wow, I'm glad I'm meeting this person. I'm going to really talk. Well, so it, it, I feel it, that's how it's been. It's, it's been a real pleasure for me. And as you know, I am fascinated with, with instances in which people do change their views of the world. And I look yeah. forward to continuing that conversation with you in the future. Yeah, me too. And I hope we can do more because honestly, we only scratched the surface. I mean, we could go, we could do a whole thing on just, you know, what it was like to run Planned Parenthood or, you know, there's, you've got too many aspects to your life to cover in one talk. But anyway, um, heartfelt thanks, much love to you and your family. Stay well, and we will talk again soon, I hope, Gloria. Thank you so much, Frank. It has been my true pleasure. Thank you. In Conversation with Frank Schaefer is a production of the George Bailey Morality and Public Life Fellowship. It is produced by Ernie Gregg and hosted by Frank Schaefer, author of Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, a post-pandemic blueprint for rebalancing work and family in favor of love and living. To learn more and support the show, please visit lovechildrenplanet.com.